Welcome to another great message at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Greetings, Anchor Church. My name is Jeremiah Bowser, and this morning I'm coming to you from what the French call Le Bout du Monde, the end of the world. It's not really the end of the world, but if you're talking to somebody from Paris and you're talking about anything outside of Paris, it's the end of the world. It's actually the Bretagne region of France, which is the far western tip of the country and really the far western tip of the continent. But via the World Wide Web this morning, I can come to you from here all the way in Johannesburg, a hemisphere away. It's pretty amazing. But before we get started, I want to thank Pastor Adrian and Lee and the entire staff of Anchor Joburg for allowing me this opportunity to come to you this morning and weigh in on a subject that I love so much, the subject of revival. And, you know, Pastor Adrian and I have been communicating quite often, trying to find a good time for me to come and be with you guys in person on a Sunday morning. And hopefully, as soon as the world settles down a little bit, that'll be able to happen. But I also want to thank Jake Schwarzweger this morning from Overland. If you know Overland, you know that they raise the bar pretty high in everything they do. And I think last week, with that amazing message, Jake raised the bar even higher. And especially with the setting he was recording in. I mean, my goodness. He's not making it very easy for those of us who are trying to follow that. I mean, how can you compete with a, a message delivered in the Zambian sun right in front of the, uh, the Zambezi River Gorge? Like, impossible. But here's not so bad either, as long as it doesn't rain here in the next 15 minutes. But as long as we're continuing with the introductions, again, I'm Jeremiah. My wife's name is Courtney. We've been married for almost 20 years. We have two sons, Jed, who is 15 years old, and Elijah, who is 11. Uh, we've lived here in this part of France for the last year. We come originally from America, but uh, the story of how we ended up here is quite an interesting one and pretty long, so maybe one day I'll get the opportunity to share it with you all. But the short version is we've been praying for years that God would open up doors for our ministry here in Europe. We've done a lot in Africa and a lot in Brazil and different places, but really we had not been to Europe in quite some time. So we begin to pray prayers. God, open doors for our ministry here in Europe because we believe that it's time for Europe to experience a revival. So we determined early on that we were not going to be the kind of Christian that would pray a prayer for God to open a door. And then when he does, and it doesn't look quite like what we thought it would, that we would just refuse to go through it. So when God began to open doors here, they didn't look quite like we had expected, but we determined that we were going to walk through that door and be faithful to the call of God. So we sold all of our stuff in the United States and we moved over here really not knowing many people at all. But here we are believing for revival to sweep this nation and to sweep this continent. So I love this subject of revival. It's one that's near and dear to my heart. The name of our ministry is Ignition Point Ministries. And, and this fits so well with this topic because the, the definition of an ignition point, an ignition point is the point at which fire can sustain itself without the constant application of heat. And so I don't know if the trajectory of your life has ever looked like mine often has, where uh, if you were to draw it, it would look more like a roller coaster than it would a steady ascent. You know, there are times when like you're on the spiritual mountaintop, you're fired up, your spirit is full, and then all of a sudden the real world comes in and it crash, you crash down to the bottom. And then you wait for the next Christian experience to bring you back up to the mountaintop, whether it be a conference or a camp or a special series of revival meetings or a worship recording or a great sermon from your pastor. And then you, you're back up to the top again. You're fired up, you're strengthened in your spirit, only to come crashing down again. 
I've had this occur too many times in my life, and I don't believe for a second that that's the dream of God for any of us. I think the dream of God for our lives is a trajectory that looks more like a steady incline, or at least something consistent, where our fire is sustained. The fire in our hearts, the life in our hearts is sustained and not dependent upon good circumstances or bad circumstances. And we've found in our lives that an ignition point is best reached when our passion combines with a purpose that is beyond ourselves. So we talk a lot about passion, right? Passion in worship, passion, in, passion for the Lord, hunger for the things of God. But if that doesn't have an outlet, if there's no purpose involved in that, ah, it's like the scripture that says that uh, hope deferred makes a heart grow sick. So there has to be a purpose combined with the passion. But if there's only purpose and no passion, Oh, then you'll just you'll spin out, you'll dry up because there's nothing fueling your purpose. But when the two combine, I believe that, that, what the, that the fire in our hearts can light and stay lit when we have this, uh, this combination of passion pouring into purpose, pouring, stoking again a passion. It's like this give and take that provides consistency. And I think that's really what we're talking about in this series, a culture of revival. Not an event, but a culture, something that touches every aspect of our lives. So when I hear the word revival, the first thing that I think of is the event, right? You think of uh, these events where God would pour out His Spirit, you know, super strong on a, on a group of people for a specific time and a specific place. And these events, like Jake mentioned last week, Azusa Street, uh, the Welsh Revival, I would add to that the Great Awakenings in the United States in the early 1900s. And then my mind goes to the revivalists, you know, the men who led these events, uh, the Jonathan Edwards, the Charles Finney, the, the Whitfield, the, you know, the list goes on and on and on. But one thing that all of these things have in common is that there was a beginning and unfortunately there was an end. But what we're talking about in this series is something that does not have an end, something that can spark in our hearts and in our lives and then touch every aspect of our life and continue on throughout our lives. Uh, if you ask 50 different Christian leaders for a good definition of revival, I think you'll probably come back with 50 different answers. So when it gets like that on subjects like this, I just like to look for the Word, look at the Word and try to get something from that. So a short tour of the internet will lead you to uh, the etymology of the word revival. So revival comes from the root word revive, which actually comes from a French word from the early 15th century, revivre. Pardon my accent, I'm still working on my French a little bit. But before that, there is also a Latin word. But the three parts of the definition of revive or revival that stick out to me are these. A return to consciousness, a restoration to health, and to bring to life. And I love that. So we're talking about something that is unconscious being brought to a state of consciousness, something that is unhealthy or sick or diseased being brought back to health. And then finally, something that is dead, experiencing revival and being brought back to life. So this idea of life and how God gives us life, I think is at the core of everything that we're talking about in this series. And there are many times throughout scripture where the Lord uses the same way to bring life to the dead. And you don't really have to look any further than page one and page two of your Bible to find the first example of this. So turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter one. And here you find the story of creation. And already in verse three, you see the way that God is creating things. It says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And it was evening and it was morning the first day. So God spoke light into existence. He said, let there be light. And his voice had a power and boom, there was light. And with the scriptures that follow this, you see the same pattern unfold. Let there be land, boom. Let there be trees, boom. Plants, animals, birds, fish, seagulls, which we have a ton of around here. He would speak things into existence with his words. They would materialize. He would assess it, find that it was good, and then speak something else into existence. This pattern continued until we reach his creation of man. And he does something different. Did he do something different because he forgot what he was doing? Did he do something different because he decided to get creative in a moment? He got bored with speaking things and decided to do something else? I don't think so. I think from the very beginning, he was modeling for us the kind of relationship that he desires and desires now to have with us and us to have with him. So you find this in Genesis 2, verse 7. And don't worry, we're going to work through it a little faster. We're not going to touch every single chapter in the Bible in this message. But we've been in Genesis 1, now we're in Genesis 2. Genesis 2, verse 7, gives the way that God brought man into being. It says that he formed man from the dust of the ground. So automatically, there's the difference, right? He spoke everything else into, the, into existence. And I can imagine that the voice of God is powerful and it can travel a great distance. He doesn't have to be near you to be heard. But that's not exactly what he was trying to model for us with the kind of relationship that he desired to have. So he, I, I just have this mental image of him scooping down, or reaching down and scooping up dust in his hands. And like a master craftsman, just forming this dust into this perfect form of man. So he could have done it with his voice. He could have said, let there be man, and boom, there's Pastor Adrian. <laughs> but instead, he did something more personal. He used his hands, touch, and he formed man. But then he took it a step further. It says that he breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So he could have done it with his voice, he could have done it with his hands, but instead he pulled man to himself, right? Face to face, that's the only position you can be in if you're going to blow into somebody's nostrils. And I don't want you to demonstrate that right now and really don't even think about it, but that is the position that God carved out for us to be in. Not at a distance, not at even an arm's length, but face to face is the position that he designed for you and for me to receive the life and the breath of God. How amazing is that? But distance doesn't work in this. And I think it's amazing that he used breath as the example of how he gives us life because you can go for weeks without eating. You can go for days without having something to drink, but you can only go for a few moments without taking a breath. Breath is important. If you ask any first responder, what's the first thing to check for when you go up to somebody that is in a trauma situation? Check for breathing. You know, in the line of ministry that we're in, we travel a lot. And so we're on a lot of plane flights. And you don't have to be a frequent flyer for long to understand that there is a specific uh, demonstration that the flight attendants give you, the safety demonstration. And you can memorize it pretty quickly. Uh, you know, they stand at the front of the plane and then they never have a happy look on their face because they've probably done this demonstration 10 times that same day. But they show you that if there's an emergency, there are exit lights that lead to exits forward and backward. And then they describe how a seatbelt works for those of you who can't figure out how a seatbelt works. And then they demonstrate how to put on the life jacket and how to inflate it. And then they say that if the cabin loses pressure, 
oxygen masks will fall from the ceiling. Reach forward, pull the mask to yourself, place the strap over your head, and begin to breathe normally. Don't worry if the bag doesn't inflate, oxygen is still flowing. Have you ever heard that before? So then they say one other thing that's pretty curious. They say if you're traveling with a, with a small child or somebody that needs assistance, put the mask on yourself first and then give assistance. And immediately, like that offends my fatherly sensibilities because if we are in an emergency, if there's a moment of panic and things are going wrong and it looks like we might crash, there's no way in the world that I'm going to treat myself first. I'm going to make sure my son sitting next to me or the person sitting next to me has the help that they need, right? Because that's what, we're, that's what humanity teaches us to do. Look out for the ones who are in need, especially in times of trouble. But what the airline knows that we don't often think about is that in a moment of, of terror, people might be panicked and they might struggle and they might fight against the help that we're trying to offer them. And the whole time that we're struggling to, to provide someone else with a breath, we ourselves are not breathing. And if we're not breathing, we are not going to be any good to anyone else around us. Because if we're not breathing, we're dying. And the design that the Lord had from the very beginning in the way to give us life was to be face to face with Him. That's the invitation today, to draw to that place, to come to that place where we are face to face with God, receiving His breath. And you know, this is something that is a consistent cycle. 750 million times in an average person's life, they take a breath. This happens over and over and over and over, not just one time, not just once a week or twice a week if you're a super Christian, right? Breathing on Wednesday night and Sunday. But this idea of breath is central to it all. You know, we breathe in the breath of God and then we exhale, right? Every inhale is followed by an exhale. We exhale that same life, that same breath to the world around us. And then we're right there to receive another breath. Exhale, receive another breath. Exhale, receive another breath. Exhale. It sounds to me like a culture of life, a culture of revival. And really, if you look around, that's what this world needs right now. They don't need to see Christians who are, who are struggling with the same thing. They need to see Christians who are connected to a source other than receiving life from their job or receiving life from their bank account or receiving life from their friends and family, but receiving life from the breath of God because it's not contingent on any circumstance. So I look around the world right now and I know with you in South Africa, it's much the same as it's been with, here, uh, with us here in Europe, in France, with this global pandemic and the, the entire shutdown of life as we know it, right? Jobs are being lost. Uh, things are being closed. Churches haven't had services for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. The financial economy in the world is being, you know, just torn to pieces. It's a scary time. Here in France, we were on lockdown for at least eight weeks where we were only allowed outside for an hour a day for a little bit of exercise or a, or a run to the store. And even then we had to have a government permission slip. And if we failed to carry that permission slip with us, it would result in fines and even prison time for people that broke the rules a couple of times. So they were they were being very serious here with that. And I know it's much the same there in South Africa. We come from the United States and it's, you know, that uh, COVID is running rampant in the United States right now. And people are scared and affected by it, their health, their, their financial future. And then you add on top of that, like in the United States, the, the, racial, the racial tensions that are flaring up again and the riots and the protests and the literal burning down of blocks and blocks and blocks of, of different cities. And I know that you in South Africa, you, you've endured things like this for decades and decades. 
And it's like the world right now is on fire. So what is this burning world supposed to see from us? I immediately think of three examples in the Bible. Three examples of, of men that were in situations that were not of their choosing, but yet were untouched by the circumstances and, and were being watched by everybody on the outside and everybody on the outside saw the faithfulness of God because of the way that the believers in these stories responded to the, to the emergency. The first two of these stories are in the book of Daniel. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel 3. This is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So just to give a little bit of background, the king at the time was Nebuchadnezzar, and he decided that he was going to have a, a golden idol made of himself, and at a specific time, his entire kingdom would bow down and worship the golden idol. And so the time came, and the entire kingdom bowed down except for three men. And these three outstanding young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were already noted for their excellent spirit. They had already been given promotion. They were well respected. But in this moment, they defied the king's order. And so charges were brought up against them and they were sentenced to death by fire. So let's pick it up in verse 19. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, other clothes, it's like they loaded clothes on these guys to make them more flammable, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. So if you know this story, you know that moments later, Nebuchadnezzar looks up towards the furnace, expecting to see those three guys flaming up, I'm sure. But instead of seeing that, he sees four men in the fire, walking around and talking, as if they weren't in the fire at all. The fourth he recognized as the Son of God. So this is the picture of Jesus in the suffering with them, in the fire with those three. Because as much as, as we are connected to Him through the breath, He is connected to us. Even in the hard times, even in the middle of hysterical world events like this, Jesus is right here with us, connected to us, still giving us breath, still giving us life. As we exhale it to the world, He fills us again. He fills us again. So then we pick this up a little further later, a little further down the, down the line here. And Nebuchadnezzar calls for them to come out. In verse 27, it says, The satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched. And then this is the best one. And there was no smell of fire on them. Now, I've, I've enjoyed a braai. I've enjoyed a shohasco, which is what they call a braia in Brazil, or a barbecue in the United States. And I know that you can't even be around a bride pit for more than a minute without walking away smelling like smoke. It's a wonderful smell, isn't it? But these guys were in the middle of the fire. They should have been destroyed instantly. But instead, they come out with not even a sign of problem, not even a smell of smoke. And everyone that was gathered around saw that. Three chapters later, if you turn to Daniel 6, you see the same story played out with Daniel. Similar circumstances. He is commanded not to pray. He prays. He's arrested and receives a death sentence. They throw him into the lion's den. This is going to be a nasty way to die. 
the king, who is still kind of fond of Daniel, you know, that was, the king was trapped by these accusers into doing this. The Bible says he comes to the lion's den the next morning after Daniel's been in there all night. You can pick this up in Daniel 6, verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. It says the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. No wound, no bite marks, not even a scratch or a bruise from being thrown into a pit. That's pretty amazing. What should have just destroyed him in a second. He was untouched by it. It goes on to say that, that the king was so mad at the people who had falsely accused Daniel that he had them and their entire families thrown into the pit. And it says before their bodies reached the bottom, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. So it's not like the fire wasn't hot. It's not like the lions weren't hungry. It's that the Spirit of God that was in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and in Daniel was stronger than the circumstances in the outside world. Even though they didn't choose the setting, they didn't choose the event, they didn't choose what was happening to them, God was still faithful in the midst of it. Why? Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel were not drawing their life from their situation. They weren't drawing their life from their successes or their or their friendships. They were drawing their life from the living God, drinking from the well that never runs dry. The third example of this is found at the end of Acts. It's Acts uh, 27, maybe 26 and 27. Let me find it real quick. It's the story of Paul and the shipwreck. Acts 27 and Acts 28, it spans the two. So Paul had been arrested and he was being transported to Rome on a prison transport ship that ran into a storm. And it's a fantastic story. Uh, the storm ends up destroying the boat and they're shipwrecked on the island of Malta. Paul and like more than 250 other people. To make matters worse, they made a fire and Paul reached in to adjust the wood and a poisonous snake jumped up and bit him. Jumped out of the flames and bit him. <laughs> and so at that moment, all the people gather around and the Bible says that they're there watching Paul, waiting for him to swell up and die. That's what it says in the, in the scripture there, to swell up and die. So clearly, they had seen this snake have an effect on other people. But when it bit Paul, they waited and they waited and they waited. And it says, after some time, and seeing that the snake had no ill effect on Paul, they were amazed and they actually referred to him as a god. And what went on to happen was a move of God was sparked on the island of Malta that lasted for three months three months and it saw all of the people on the island healed, all of the sick healed. So was Malta a destination on Paul's ministry calendar? Absolutely not. He didn't end up there by anything that had to do with his own choice. He found himself in the middle of that situation, but he also found his God faithful. Again, he wasn't drawing life from a situation. He wasn't drawing life from, from anyone's approval. He was standing in the place that God carved out for him to stand in the spirit, face to face with God. There was no distance in this relationship between Paul and the Lord. There was no distance in this relationship between Daniel and the other three guys and the Lord. 
He, they weren't keeping him at a distance. They weren't even keeping God in an arm's length. They were standing in the place carved out and designed for them to stand in, where they were receiving the consistent breath of God. They would receive it. They would exhale it. They would receive it, and they would exhale it. And the world around them, in all three of these circumstances, all three of these stories, the world around them was totally changed by ordinary people. So how can we, as ordinary people, have a culture of revival in our hearts that, that provides something that this world needs in this day? Is it that we schedule nightly meetings from here until the return of the Lord and have extended periods of worship? I mean, some of that could be great, but that's not exactly what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is developing a culture of revival in our hearts, each one of us. You developing a culture of revival in your heart, me developing a culture of revival in my heart. And it just starts with taking that first breath, that first breath of life, letting the Spirit of God fill you and then exhaling that life to the world, whether it's in worship, whether it's in you know, any way that we shine the light of Jesus to the world, that we bring the light and the life of Jesus to those around us. And then He immediately fills us again. We immediately exhale again, and the process of respiration keeps us at a point of consistent revival. And a culture of revival is born in our hearts, and then is born in our community, and then spreads to the world. So what does the world, this burning world, need to see from me and you right now? It needs to see a body of believers comprised of individuals who have their hearts set on fire by the Lord and are filled with the life of God. So this morning, let that start in your life. This morning, I'm going to let it start in my life again because it's a constant thing. And then we will see this world changed through our lives.